what it's about. They want to look good, the hairstyles, the clothing, they want to look good and they want to evade the police as well at the same time. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Game 2 podcast where we discuss Asians in football. I'm joined as ever by Kevil at Kevil1 underscore KP. Kevil, you've got a new podcast. Do you want to tell us about it? Uh, yeah, it's the oh, it's the Goalkeepers Mindset podcast. And I speak to professional goalkeepers about sports psychology and mindset and high performance. Fantastic. How many episodes you got so far? Got three out. Fourth one's out this Friday. Um, and yeah, it's, it's doing okay. It's been it's been good with the goalkeeping uh, goalkeeping community. So yeah, it's been all right. Okay. Is there stuff that non-goalkeepers can learn as well? Is it worth everyone tuning in? Uh, yeah, it's all it's all just about sports psychology, really. So how goalkeepers use psychology to prepare for games and deal with sticky moments in their career, anxiety, stress, that kind of stuff, and how that's applicable to to everyday life. Um, so yeah, it's just it was just me having a chinwag with some goalkeepers, and it turned into something a little bit more serious, which is nice. So yeah, fantastic. And also we got Z, who's on Instagram as at Desi B A L R S. And you've also been active as well. You're now doing Instagram lives every week, right? Yeah. Do you know what? I was inspired by this podcast. I thought, do you know what? Because this is uh, your gig and I'm kind of contributing, I just wanted to talk a bit more. So Mate, I thought, why not spend gig. my Sundays? It's ours. It's not mine. <laughs> uh, I think you're the star. We're just, we're just your, um, we're just your supporting act, really. Hanging, but, hanging um... off my coattails. <laughs> 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 no, nah, it's all good. I mean, look, I think um, right now because we're in lockdown, there's so much chat that's going on. There's not much you can really do. So I thought, why not spend my Sundays on Instagram Live and see what we're, what kind of mischief we can concoct up. So we've been doing that for the last two, three weeks. Um, they're supposed to be half an hour episodes, but they're turning to be epic prologues now. Two, three hours. Two, two three hours, yeah. But what's what's so great about it because it is unscripted as well and it's live, so it's great being in that environment where you kind of have a few topic ideas that we talk about regarding football, and mostly it's been related to coaching and, and, and up, football up and development. Now you've had Coach Rudy at Coach Rudy R W D Y on, right? Yeah, I've had Coach Rudy for the first three uh, episodes. He was supposed to be only on for one. But I just felt there's so much uh, left unsaid after the first edition that we did. And we got some decent feedback from the guys who tuned in. So kind of made it into a regular slot on a Sunday. So we've been in that for the last three Sundays and hopefully going to be continuing that uh, as long as possible, as long as there's something interesting to talk about. But it's great to um, engage with, live with the community that's listening to to what you're saying and almost providing us with further information and knowledge as well as we're going along. Superb. Okay, so we're recording this on Monday, the 11th of January. Z, what's been happening in the world of football and specifically around Asians in football over the last few days or week or so? Well, the last few days have been quite interesting. It's the FA Cup third round and we all love a bit of magic in the cup. We've seen what happened with uh, All love a bit of giant killing? Absolutely. We saw that happen to Leeds United. Um, and 
another story that developed in the cup that can I guess you want to talk the magic of the cup was the 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 kids of the under 23 team for Aston Villa playing against the champions of of England Liverpool in the third round on Friday night and what was most interesting for us was the appearance of uh, Arjan Reiki uh, making the starting starting 11 uh, the Arjun's a second year scholar at Aston Villa so he's still got that journey to go on but it's um, it sort of kind of ignited uh, the community, especially on, on on social media, to be to to watch the game, and be proud of the fact that there there was an Asian player playing in the game. I mean, usually you say he's a scholar, which means he's not a professional yet. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So he's so in his the... second year. Yeah, he's second year scholar, but he's fighting for that pro contract. Cool. So under normal circumstances, we wouldn't be talking about scholars and youth team players. But like you said, he's he's made his FA Cup debut and he's played against the champions of England. He's not going to face many tougher opponents than that, no matter where his career takes him. What did you think? How did he play? I think if you have seen a few games that uh, Arjun's played at uh, in Premier League 2 and on the 18 level, when uh, most recently he scored a goal that was almost just inside the halfway line and he loved the keeper. And that caused a bit of a, a bit of a stir on, on social media, especially. So he's definitely got something about him. Didn't look out of place. I think Liverpool on the day were strong, and they, they definitely showed that in the second half. The first half ended one-one, and the Villa boys didn't look out of place because they played together on a regular. It wasn't a team that was formed together. These guys know each other, know their game. But if you look at the stats of the game, Liverpool did dominate the position, and in the end, it was their quality that shone through. But I guess it was a great insight for Arjan, not only Arjan, Louis Barry, who scored uh, the goal for Villa to equalise, showed that the, the levels they need to reach to compete with teams at that level. So it would have been a great eye-opener and education for, for those players. Fantastic. Kevil, how important do you think this is? How much importance should we attach to the fact that this Asian kid turned up and played against Liverpool? Um, I think there's two perspectives that you, you can look at it from you can look at it from the fact that it's an Asian boy playing or a South Asian boy playing in in a strong villa side of 23s against European champions or you can look at it from another perspective which is in my opinion the way that we should be looking at it as it's another football player who's living their dream and getting the opportunity to play I think for for South Asians coming through now and there are a few dotted around at different academies I think there is an unconscious pressure from the community to go out there and make it. And I think the we, we can highlight the wins and this is a massive win for the South Asian community that he played. But I think the less pressure that we can put on these guys, the better because the more chance they then got of making it at the highest level. And players these days have so much pressure put on them when they're in the academy system anyway, which Arjun probably is experiencing. And I think the last thing that we want to do is is put additional pressure by saying you've got to go and make it and be the the model for future Asians. So yes, we should celebrate this win. Yes, it's a massive step forwards in terms of uh, exposure for South Asians, but we need to be be grounded and I think maybe just calm down a little bit and give him the space that he probably needs in this moment as well. I think it's quite interesting that to a lot of people and my audience, I guess, is what I see on Twitter as well as several WhatsApp groups, etc. I'm on. Some people are saying comments like, well, there you go. If you're good enough, you'll make it. And here it comes. We're going to start start giving some serious representation now. Um, what do you think, Z? Do you think those are the right sentiments? 
I kind of second what what Kevin said about not putting pressure on players. I've seen this happen countless times over the last 10, 15 years that I've been covering where there's an expectation that's placed on on, on young players. So we saw this in, in 2003, 2004, when we had Anwar, who we've had, we've had on this podcast when he was in the youth, youth team at West Ham. And all of a sudden, he because he got a bit of the publicity and, and there was knowledge that he was an Asian player at West Ham in the Premier League team, he was suddenly the flag bearer for the community. Whereas so when you speak to him about um, about uh, about the pressures that exist at the game at that level, we've had someone who's gone through the football life cycle and will tell you that that kind of uh, attention and added pressure can have, or an expectation even, can have can be an extra weight to carry. So I think the best lesson is what, what Kevil said, to not put pressure. This is great in the sense that he's played the game and we acknowledge it and it's a first team game. And that's great. But he's got his journey to go through. Um, and we have to have zero expectation on him, but let him fulfill whatever pathway that's going to be. I think we're starved of a star. We're starved of a player. And there's the other notion that it only takes one to break through for the floodgates to open. And I think because that's been repeated mantra for so long, that we're looking at this as the one. And if you look at what the sentiments on Twitter were, they come from a, a good place. But then to say to read too much into it when it was just a happenstance really it's a circumstance that the Villa first team couldn't play due to several the first team players testing positive for COVID and having to self-isolate that the opportunity arose for the under 23s so if there's a lesson to take is at any stage in your career whether you're in football or otherwise always be ready because when there's a chance to step up an opportunity will present itself you just not know when that's going to be and I think that's the main narrative I'll take out of it, that they had a chance to step up and they stepped up. Now it's back to working hard again. And we should just continue to support all the players who are in the system. And if we're looking for Asian players, then we could have spent the next day watching Swansea City play and play Stevenage, where they won 2-0. And we had Yandanda play and he made an assist. So if we want to see Asian players playing, we just need to be, if that's what our one ten requirement is, then they're happily playing in game. If we think this is going to be a major breakthrough, might need to just cool that down a little because this may or may not be the thing that breaks things through. But it would have been a great inspiration for parents, especially got young kids. And I did see a few tweets of uh, parents saying this was great for my child to see an Asian player playing. I think that kind of inspiration was great, but let's not level a huge amount of expectation for this to happen. But equally, if Arge makes it a villa or goes to another team, let's not say that's a disappointment or let's not say that's not a realisation of talent or anything like that. Let's just say that's part of his football journey and just keep our expectations realistic as well. Cool. Um, I wasn't going to add anything, but then I thought of something, so I will. A um, couple of things with Arjun. I mean, I don't want to, I, don't, I have no wish to place any kind of pressure on him whatsoever what was quite it was fun to see was he tweeted out a video message that he sent to the Punjabi villains which are a a Punjabi based Aston Villa fan club and I know one of their members was interviewed by by Sky Sports as well and how proud etc they were of him Um, so the question that I've got on the back of that for you, Kevil, is 
everyone reacts to pressure in different ways. Some people will thrive on it and some people will, I guess, will need to be coached to be able to deal with it. This kid's what, 17, 18 years old. Is it possible now to already know which way he's more likely to go? And what do you think Villa needs to be doing to support him at the moment on that basis and the fact that there are people out there whether he likes it or not. And the fact that he is part of the community, he's going to hear it. He's going to have a little bit of extra weight on his shoulders. From my experience working with academy players and being an academy player myself, and I'm sure Arjun's probably got people telling him this, but playing one first team game at 17 years old, it's a great achievement, but it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. There are hundreds and thousands of players that have played first team games when they're an academy player or scholar who have not gone on to achieve anything in the game. I think not just for Arjun, but for any young Asian player listening, like when you get to a certain point in your career, when you're a scholar, the main focus for you has to be developing and um, being able to hone in on the basic skills that you have so that you're prepared for first team football. Arjun's main focus at the moment isn't the fact that he was one of very few Asian players to play a pro game. His focus is the fact that he got good minutes under his belt against European champions, that he's one step close towards a pro contract. And I think that's what everyone at Villa will be telling him to focus on is screw all that, you know, that nonsense about focusing on the race side of things. Focus on your football and make that your priority because that's where we're going to reap the rewards of having an Asian player is when he hopefully eventually gets his pro contract. Cool. Fantastic. Um, See, what else has been happening with Asians this weekend? Well, um, I mentioned Yan Dando made an assist uh, in uh, Swansea's winning the FA Cup as well. But it wasn't so great for Danny Bart. Uh, Stoke City lost 4-0 to Leicester. And just moving on to Leicester, one of the guys that was on the bench was Hamza Chowdhury. And he's had a bit of news around him as well, whether he has, I guess, a future at the club or not. That was raised in a press conference last week. Uh, Brendan Rodgers was asked whether there was any truth to Hamza being loaned out to either Newcastle or West Brom or one of the other teams interested in him. And the response that Brendan gave was quite interesting, um, saying that someone like Hamza Chowdhury, he's had a few, he's had more than a handful of games under his belt. He's been a regular first team member for the last two, three seasons on in the in the first sixteen. Um, he's not in a position where he needs to go out on loan to get experience. He's in in a position where he needs game time and be playing football. Um, and currently, Leicester City have two players ahead of him uh, in his position with Ndidi and and Mendy. Uh, both ahead of a pecking order. Um, and Brendan's response was, if any interest has come in for, for, for Hamza, they'll be looking at either selling him because that's a club where he need move on to a club where he can play first in games or they'll keep him. I don't think a loan deal was attractive uh, to, to Brendan. So that's something that's developing and we're in the transfer window now. So we'll see um, how that pans out. But um, it's... Uh, It'll be an interesting one. I, don't, I, I, I couldn't tell you what the best move for him would be. All I'd say is Leicester City would have, they'll have European games coming up as well. They're, they'll have the running in the Premier League for probably that halfway season now. So there's going to be a cluster of games coming up. And like we saw with Arge, an opportunity arose for him to play on Friday night. If certain, you know, circumstances work such a way, Hamza would be, I'm sure, ready to to jump in should um, should anything happen to Mendy or or an Ndidi, and that opportunity could present itself at Leicester. So it's just one of those situations. Now it's a lot of speculation, especially with transfer windows. So just a story worth keeping an eye on and see how that develops. 
Okay, fantastic. Any other players at the weekend worth mentioning? Just just a couple. It was, um, for me, it was good to see Issa, Issa Suleiman get a few minutes playing for Vitoria Gomeres in uh, the Portuguese league. Um, he's was he's a, a regular former starter. Villa player, right? Former Villa player, indeed. Former Villa player, indeed. So he, he did make one appearance for Villa in the EFL Cup. Um, again, man, when he was 17, 18, but he's currently not, playing not, in Portugal. Not against Liverpool, no? <laughs> no, he was against Liverpool. Not against Liverpool. I think that had less fanfare than, than, than Arjan's um, debut. Uh, but yeah, he's back, back in, the, in the mind of, uh, of the manager in, uh, at Vittorio Gomeris, which is good. And they're currently fifth in the league. So they're currently sitting in the Europa League spot, pushing for top four, but that's, that's a big gap between fourth and fifth. So kind of seeing how that develops as well for, for Vittoria this season. Um, and also saw Sarpit Singh was playing for Nuremberg. Now Sarpit Singh, obviously, he had a huge headline last year as well when he signed for Bayern Munich from Wellington Phoenix in the AFL. So when he moved to Bayern Munich, there was a huge uh, news around him. He's currently on loan to Nuremberg who played in the second Bundesliga. Um, so he's getting game time there as a starter there, picking up the experience. Um, an interesting just note on, on Sarpri is when Bayern Munich signed him, they were they were playing him in the second eleven, sorry, the second team that play in the third division. But his statistics there in terms of goals and assists was quite high. So what they saw was an accelerated uh, learning from him. So they promoted him to the first team squad where he made a, two or three appearances there. But they've loaned him out this season because if you look at the Bayern Munich squad, it's just ridiculous how good it is, and especially the, the young players they got there as well. They've got Jamal Musiala, they've got Alfonso Davies, they've got ridiculous players that play for Bayern Munich. And they're the champions by Cantor. So Sarpri is getting that minute time in, uh, in, in the second division. But I think that was always the plan to get him acclimatised and, 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 and up to speed for, for German football. And it's... Uh, for me, it's great to see that he's getting game time and starting at Nuremberg as well. Cool. Superb. All right. So we'll move on now uh, to our interview with Riaz, um, which we did a little earlier. What were your thoughts about that, Z? Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that, that when football was in its dark days, that we had one of our own? Playing a, playing a prominent role in the world of football hooliganism. Who'd have thought? And I think when that, that, that conversation that we had learning about um, this individual, and I'll let you name him, it's fascinating to hear about how he got involved in that kind of gritty world of football hooliganism and, and, and the casual scene and what it meant and it was more than just, obviously, there was the whole violence and something that's been romanticised in, in films like Football Factory and Green Street. But just understanding the culture that existed at that time and, 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 and growing up as, a, as an Asian guy in, in, in Leicester as well, for me, it was just fascinating just to hear the story. I think it's, I mean, yeah, it's worth pointing out that Look, we're not we we're celebrating his story, but we're not celebrating the stuff he did as well. Although he was at points, I guess to well, at pains to point out that look, he wasn't going around causing trouble. He wasn't going around smashing shops in and attacking old pensioners on the street. He was when he was fighting, he was fighting against 
other people who were looking to fight back. So, and it was very much a tribal, young testosterone fuel thing as well. But um, yeah, it's an insight which, which I think most people don't have, and especially amongst the Asian community, we've already mentioned Kevil that most or that a lot of Asian, a lot of football grounds are are in in areas which have developed a big Asian population and there hasn't always been harmony between the fans and, and the local community. So, but it's, so it's interesting to find someone who was able to straddle both and, um, and meet and meet on both sides. So without further ado, I, this is our interview with Riaz Khan. Okay, so this week, me and Z are joined by Riaz Khan. Riaz, how are you doing? Sam, mate, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, very well, thank you very much. Very well indeed. And I can hear, or I can just about make up from the sound of your voice. You're not an East Londoner like me and Z. Where are you from? Leicester, the best place in Europe. Remember ah. that, yeah? <laughs> and also the most multicultural city in the UK. Is that right? Absolutely. We've got one street called Narborough Road, but one road. There's 23 different nationalities that live on that one road. Oh, amazing. Three different shops. And that's wow. in the whole of the UK. There's nothing like that at all in the whole of the UK. But, and that tells you something. And how, all right, so, I mean, 21, 23 nationalities on one road, that sounds like a lot. Is that, what does that, okay, I'm going to ask the question. Sorry, let's just get into it. What does that mean for the white people in the area? Are there lots of them? Have they all moved out? What's going on? No, it's, uh, Narborough Road has always been a multicultural because we've always had students coming in to live there because of the university not far away. So you've had a lot of Irish, English, Scottish, and you had a lot of influx of Lithuanians, Latvians, Polish, Russians. So it's still, you know, it still has the you know the mix of you know white faces, brown faces, and black faces. So it's not too bad. But a lot of the English lads or the Irish lads, or what do you want to call them, European uh, European lads, white lads, have kind of moved out into the sticks. A lot of them have. Because they became, you know, not well off, but they got worked hard and decided to move into, you know, the countryside, a bit of country air. <laughs> I mean, that, that's something similar to to where me and Z are from East London. Where, I mean, if you look at areas like Forest Gate and stuff like that, it, you, it, I mean, it used to be a lot more mixed, and then the Asians come in, and that's where they kind of congregated, started opening their shops. And even though that Green Street, for instance, is the main road, and that's where West Ham was. You see, you'd agree that most of the white population have kind of moved out to sort of Ilford, Romford and rest of Essex. Yeah, well, it's pretty much part of the white flight, wasn't it? I think this happened in the mid 80s. There's a, it's an interesting news clip that I saw that someone sent to me from the 80s about how Green Street was changing. And then they had interviews with the local residents who are white about where they were moving out to. So they all moved out to the outskirts of East London heading towards Woodford and even further out into Epping and Essex areas. Mm. But it's yeah. interesting what happens, in, especially around here and where we are. It's always been an, it's been predominantly an immigrant population, as, as much as I've known. There's always been a new wave of immigrants that have come, into, come to this part of town. What I don't understand is West Ham is hot, smack bang in a Pakistani community. Well, East Ham is, isn't it? A lot of Pakistanis and Bengalis live there. Yet their football fan base was, majority, was predominantly white. It was hard to see hardly any Asians with them when they came to Leicester's ground. You know, the, the football fans, I saw, all I saw was white lads and a, a splatter of black here and there. That was it. 
There's a, I mean, there's a yeah. couple of things to that. As Z mentioned, there there was the white flight in the eighties, for want of a better phrase. But um, that area has always been traditional East End white working class, and it has been for the last hundred plus years. And obviously, West Ham have been in and around that area. Well, they've been formed in eighteen ninety five, and they originally started as Thames Ironworks from from the docks and so you've had generations of white people that have been supporting that team and even when they moved out into Essex it's been predominantly the closest I was about to say proper football team that's disrespectful to sort of Dagenham and and Leighton Orient but it has been the closest big football team and like I said where you've got generations of support that's continued and I know in my experience there's Mm been a lot of asian supporting uh west ham fans always has been having said that there's also been as many asians for lots of reasons which we've discussed previously such as trouble on match days and stuff like that which has put the the more local community off going to west ham and that probably made a couple of generations of asians pretty much anti-West Ham, but still interested in football and hence the reason why you've got so many Man United, Liverpool fans, etc. Less so of, especially in our area of Tottenham and Arsenal, whatever, and certainly none of Chelsea or Man City. But Do you think it was the influx of the National Front in East Ham that sort of put everybody off, the Asians off? Because there was a, I would say a huge National Front following of West Ham fans, but I mean, there, were, there was that element that put them yeah. off. I, I would say so. I think in, when we're talking about the eighties, I'm I'm born in eighty five, but I know around that time, the the pub that was just about five, about five ten minute walk from the state from the stadium was a national front front hold. Do you know where old Wimpy used to be opposite, and that's where that pub would be. So what would happen is during the day you do your shopping, and as soon as it hits twelve one o'clock, you go indoors because that's when the football fans start coming out. And that's, that was just the mentality. And I remember when I was young, my mom saying, you know, be careful, don't be out and about kind of thing. There was that fear that was always there. So when we were gr- kids and we were growing up, but as you got older, you're thinking, I want to I want to go down there, I support the team. I want to go to the game. And, you know, thankfully, every time I've been there, there was never, never an issue, but there's always this fear. But I think for people who grew up in that era, that fear was genuine because there was genuine trouble that was happening at that time. Later on, that then becomes the perception and fact further down the line until you go and see for yourself whether that's still the case or not. So mm. in, in my so my experience, I'm about 10 years older than you, Z-ish, mm. maybe 13, but who's counting? Um, so I've been going to West Ham on and off in the late 70s and then started properly in the 80s when I went to secondary school. 81, 82, I can't remember exactly when. Um, and first of all, Green Street at the time was the main area for Asian shops, etc. So all Asians in that area used to go to Green Street to do their oh. shopping, which is also the home of West Ham. But the one thing they would always check before they went down there was, is there a match on? Yes, there's a match on. We're not going to go down there because all the shops would be shut. The shutters would come down. There's no point. Having said, and listen, there were there was National Front, and I remember National Front being out there giving out um, leaflets, and there, there were times when I wanted to buy a fanzine, and I was just told where to go because the people selling that fanzine had fanzine had no interest in selling to someone like me who's brand. Having said that, 
my and I could be wrong about this. And Riaz, we still haven't introduced you yet, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, <laughs> this is interesting. But I, I don't think West Ham had, had any more racist fans than any other club in the country. And I think being East End and being working class, I think we've discussed classes before in the podcast as well. And I think that was more important to a lot more people than race was. And in terms of my experience of racism, other than the odd comments said here or there, I've only ever had one incident outside of a West Ham ground and directed at me, none inside West Ham. And like I said, I've been going to West Ham regularly since the 80s. And in fact, I once, I even had, (sighs) there was an issue involving a teenage girl and her older brothers and stuff like that. I actually went to the ICF and said, do you mind helping me out? Nothing ever came of it. I didn't cause any problem, but the ICF (laughs) are willing to help me out because for them, it wasn't, the, the ones that I knew or knew of, because I wasn't involved in that scene, it wasn't about race. But that's the thing. It's like what Z's saying is true. What I'm saying is true for me. You can have lots of truths over the same thing, mm. right? So yeah. on that, let's introduce you properly, Riaz. So let me try and get this. This is your book. So yes, it it, it's called Khan, Memoirs of an Asia, Asian Casual. What is or what was an Asian casual? Basically, uh, the casual movement came about 1982, 82, really. But the actual thing about casuals was it was an identity which you'd wear, a group of lads would follow a football team, would wear designer labels to evade police, to evade the police. That's what it was all about first. Trying to evade police. Because they were football hooligans. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wanted you yeah. to say that. <laughs> the thing is, they were football hooligans, and the first casuals, well, trendies or dressers or whatever you want to call them, were the Liverpool fans. Because when they went to Europe, they were, oh, God, proud away. When they went to Europe, and I got a better one, actually. Oh, okay. Sorry, bro. This is the first time we're doing a video <laughs> podcast. I've just held out one of my Christmas presents, which is a West Ham <laughs> travel mug. <laughs> and Riaz has a Darth Vader one. Sorry, carry on. So basically what happened with 1977, 1978, Liverpool were a fantastic team back in the day. Remember the old days when they were winning everything. Then they were in Europe and they win the Europe, European Cup. So all the scouts went over to Europe and pilfered lots of design label clothes, like you know, tennis wear, mostly like Fila, Cicini, Lacoste. They pilfered it and brought it back here to, to these shores. And they were the first ones to wear it. They, the, they were the pioneers. And then the Cottonies picked up on it, 1980, 1981. They picked up on this... Thing, this lay these labels for a little bit, and we want to dress like that as well. So basically, what happens was uh, let me let me rephrase that. Hang on. Yeah, so the scouts were the first, then the Manx say they were next, then the Cockneys were third. That's what they're saying. But we know it's the scouts that were first, and it's all to do with golfing gear and tennis wear. And you had people like Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe. You had um, the golfer. What was his name in those days? Uh, I forgot his name now. Oh, so Ballesteros. Oh. People like years ago, they used to wear Pringles and Lyle and Scott jumpers. Then you had the two Ronnies. Remember the, the two Ronnies, the little one? Uh, I forgot his name. The glasses used to wear Lyle and Scott jumpers. Ronnie Corbett. Him, Ronnie Corbett used to wear Lyle and Scott jumper. He used to do his five-minute talk on his chair. He used to always like a Pringle or Lyle and Scott jumper. So these labels were out there. And then the working class youth picked upon these labels and started wearing them. They wore them initially to 
outclassed. They wanted to be basically working class youth in those days would wear design labels to show that we're doing well in life. Because look, we're we're doing well. That's what it's about. They wanted to look good, the hairstyles, the clothing, they wanted to look good and they wanted to evade the police as well at the same time. So instead of wearing red and white scarves or or I don't know what colour you guys are, I think it's purple and what, what is it? Purple and brown <laughs> is it? <laughs> claret and blue or something, yeah, claret and blue, just joking. Claret and blue scarves, right. Instead of wearing scarves like that when the football tops, they'd wear design labels to evade the police so they can kick off other firms, other fans who wore similar clothes. That's what football casual was. So for me to get into all this is, I think it was about, it was 1983 and it was about belonging because in those days, Asians never used to really mix with the general populace, you know, the general white population. Never used to really mix them. We used to keep to ourselves to ourselves. The black and the Asian youths, especially in Leicester, they stuck together to fight the National Front and the Skinners that were racist. So we never used to sort of belong to the general populace, if you get what I mean. We used to have like our own little um, enclaves, our own little buffer zones, you know, we used to keep ourselves to ourselves. And most of the Asians in those days were always studious. They wanted to study, 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 become doctors, engineers, you know, pharmacists, the rest of it. I tried that. <laughs> I failed miserably. Anyway, uh, the point was I wanted to belong because at school I never belonged to anything. At school I was always ostracised because of the colour of my skin, being the only, well, me and my brother and a couple of others were the only, only ethnic minorities in the whole school of like 2,000 kids. There was a handful. And so, you know, we used to get a lot of stick, especially from the kids there. Used to be like, how, how comes that? You said you grew up in a multicultural area. Were you just, and how did you end up in a different school then? Well, I used to go to a school called Rushmi, which was a multicultural school. And my dad, for some bizarre reason, thought that this school, which was a bit further out, was a better school for education. So he got taught out of school, so I was doing really well in. Because I'm my first year, but I was doing really well because it was in, in those days, Asians used to compete with each other. Who was the brainiest in class? Who can get the most merits? Who can get the highest grades? That's how it was. Then that took me out of that environment into English, predominant English environment, where it was about who looks the best, who can pull the most girls, things like that. So that environment where I was in, it changed completely. And I wasn't used to that environment because it was like I wasn't dressed well because my parents worked, they were working class. And most of the money was spent on bills and sending money back home to help their families out. So it was tough for kids like myself, my brothers and my sister, because we didn't dress well. Because my parents would give us an outfit, here you go, that's what you're going to wear for the rest of the year sort of thing. So going to a school like, um, which was in Ferguson, which was predominantly white, with hardly any ethnic minorities, it was tough because we looked like tramps. So we didn't belong to anything. So we didn't fit in, if you get what I mean. I mean, we had a few friends, but not, we weren't popular. Asians were not popular. We were seen as the outsiders, the ones that come to this country, take over, open up corner shops, bus drivers, you know, that sort of thing. And we were here to, just, to invade and take over the country because Margaret Thatcher, with her you know, immigration speech about swamped by immigrants, he had Enoch Palmer about the Rivers of Blood speech in 1968. That was still um, strong in the media. You had, you know, Daily Mail and The Sun pumping out all these, you know, articles and stuff about how immigrants are coming to this country. And so we didn't fit in anywhere, you know, didn't. So, at school, I was a tramp, all the way from my school years. And I didn't belong to any gangs. I wanted to belong, I wanted to be a mod, but I couldn't afford the clothing. I wanted to be a rude boy, I couldn't afford any. I just couldn't afford anything. I really was into the music, I was into hip-hop, and well, not hip-hop then, but it was soul music, jazz funk, and Tamil Motown, Northern Soul. But I could not dress how they were dressed. So I always was on the outskirts. I was on the fringes of it. You know, I just wanted to belong. Uh, then I went to college because I failed miserably at school. My O-levels are terrible because 
like I said, if I, my dad moved me out of that school and put me in another school, and it wasn't about education to these kids, they just wanted to have a good base and have a good time and just, you know, mess around. So I got that attitude as well. So I went to college, and this is the first time I was immersed in the Asian gangs, because in those days you had the Asian youth movement. Do you remember them? AYM? I don't know. Oh, you're a little bit young, oh, younger than me. We had, we had the Asian youth movements that would stand together fight against skinheads and the racist National Front. And they, they were popular in places like Birmingham, Bradford, Luton, and some parts of London as well. AYM, they were called. And Leicester had a small AYM, but they weren't strong. So we couldn't, you know, there was not... Um, there wasn't that strong as the other groups were, you know, the other sort of uh, gangs were. So I got into college and the, this is where I got sort of immersed into Asian gang culture, after, especially after watching the film The Warriors. I'm sure you guys have watched The Warriors. It's a classic film from 1979, I think it was, 1980. I watched it in London, actually, the first time I watched The Warriors was in London, in Walthamstow. I stayed there for a couple of weeks. Uh, this was 1981, I think it was. And at college, when I went to college, there was lots of different Asian gangs and black gangs, but they were together, if you get what I mean. So you had one gang over there, one gang over there. And I thought, this is different. I've never seen this before. So I jumped in and I started hanging around Asian lads more and started sort of, um, what's the word I'm trying to use? Um, getting back into hanging around Asian kids because I was at school, I was with white kids. And then when I tried to get back with these Asian kids, I didn't quite fit in. Because I was more white than Asian, if you go know to I me, mean? because I didn't speak Punjabi, I didn't speak Gujarati, I didn't really speak Urdu that well neither, to be honest. Because my first, well, my second language, I say is Pushto. My first language is English, because that's the language you're dreaming. And um, so I didn't really fit in, if you get know what I mean. But I was still part of this gang culture, this Asian gang culture. We just stuck together because of the, the racists that are in the city centre, the racists that are living in other areas. So we formed a gang. Well, I formed a gang with my college mates, like mm-hmm. all the other Asians did. So we've got immersed into this gang culture for protection, not to, you know, give it all the bigger, but it's for protection mainly, stick together in numbers. And um, so I was, I was hanging around this gang, and what happened was my studies went downhill again because these gangs did not want to study. I was in the wrong gang. I just got mixed up with the wrong people. Just, just how life took me that way in that direction. Then uh, I was I remember I was in the city centre one time and I was it was about 1983, early 83, 982, 83, and I saw a gang of lads walk past me wearing clothes like this. And they were multiracial, where there was a black lad and the rest were white, and they were following this black lad who was a leader. And I thought, and I looked at them like a little military unit, the way they walked and the way they dressed, they were dressed so smart. I was like, wow, who are these guys? And here's me like a tramp, you know, looking at these guys in the shopping mall. And I thought to myself, you know, I want to be like these guys. Because I felt they had like a like a belonging. It was really it was a it was strange because they looked smart and they looked like they belonged together, like a little military unit. And our lads, I used to hang around. We were just dosses. We didn't do much. We had nothing going for us. It was not we no direction. So I started dressing like these uh, lads. I, and, and those days, my dad used to give me pocket money for college and stuff. But I had to um, save up or I had to get someone to pill for the clothes for me. I buy it second hand. So I started dressing like these guys. And. Uh, I remember in the shopping mall, I was sitting, standing around, hanging around with the top similar to this, actually, to be honest with you. This is 983. Very similar to this one. I was there, my hat, my hair was all curly. I had long hair then. And uh, I, looked, I looked at the dog's bollocks, I thought. I stood there with my bleached jeans, my puma trainers on. And this lad, mixed race lad, half Indian, half white, came up to me and goes, I've never seen you before. I said, I've never seen you before. He goes, do you go down to football? I goes, no. He goes, why are you dressed like that for then? I was taken aback a bit. I said, what do you mean? I said, I like style. He goes, well, you can't dress like that unless you go to the football matches. 
you're classed as a plastic. So I looked and I thought, well, how do I go to a football match? Because look, there's a match on Saturday against Birmingham and then a load of black lads are going to fight against. And this, this, they started explaining the football culture to me about how gangs were formed with each football team. So they were called firms. Because the Leicester firm was called the Baby Squad. Now, Birmingham had a firm called the Zulus, which were predominantly black lads. And they mentioned all these other names and all these other groups and all these other football teams. West Ham was ICF, as you mentioned earlier. Then you had Chelsea Headhunters and you had all these other, you know, firms that he mentioned. And I thought, okay, I don't mean, but I don't mind, I don't mind being a part of this. So he goes, okay, meet me at train station at this time. So Saturday come and uh, I was my adrenaline and the, I was I was really nervous because I didn't know what to expect because I never last the only time I ever saw football violence was once when I was in the, my in nineteen seventy seven. I was a kid. And I was in the back of my dad's car and I saw these skinheads with blue and white scarves and red and white scarves and they had a massive clash. I remember someone burning the red and white scarf and I got really petrified of it. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in that. And I was about 13 years old. And um, so I missed some bits out as well because there was other things as well at school. I heard stories at school as well. But um, when I saw that incident... Let me guess, we have I'm to never... buy the book to find out, right? Yes. <laughs> I might have skipped a few things. So anyway, so... <laughs> I went, to, I went to the train station. I saw a group of lads, about 70 lads. There were a few Asian lads, not many, a few Asian lads here and there, black lads and white lads. And I thought, hey, what's going on here? How come there's a multicultural gang here? I was scratching my head thinking, you've got three Asian lads here. They were older than me. You know, a couple of brothers that were twins, but they were half Asian, half white. Then he had me, then he had another Asian lad there. And I was like, this is, this is all, this is surreal. I thought, what's going on here? You know, and... Um, <clears throat> Got on the train, I was just looking around and I remember guys looking up and down thinking, who's this Asian lad here? He's a new face. No one said anything to me. But everybody dressed the same. Well, not the same, but similar. Everybody dressed smart. They had golf, golfing gear or tennis gear on. And I thought, and the old had an array of hairstyles. And I thought, you know what? And I sat there on the train, my mate, who told me to come. And I felt, this is it. I've actually found my belonging here because I didn't get called a packer. I didn't get called a black. B, I didn't get called this, I didn't get called that. Everybody was just together, everybody was just Leicester. So I got off the train, had a clash with these black lads, with Zulus. Subsequently, I got arrested. I didn't even get to the game. <laughs> got arrested. And uh, all that time I got, I got all I can remember is like, my dad's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me, my dad's going to kill me. Because in those days, it was, with Asians, to get arrested was like a big no-no. It was a, Massive taboo to get arrested, to get nicked by the police, to get into trouble it was a big no-no. It wasn't allowed in the Asian communities, as you as you probably know yourself. So um, all this time in this police cell, thinking my dad's going to kill me. I didn't care about if we won the match or if we, you know, going to get kicking outside. All I was worried about my dad. What's he going to say about me getting arrested? And at that time, we was only allowed out at certain hours. I had to get in by a certain time, like seven o'clock in the evening. I didn't get into half 10 and I think my dad's going to kill me. Oh my God. I was like 17 years old. Now it's different. Kids go out till God knows what time now and they come back at what time. But in those days, you have to, you have strict house rules. You come in at this time, you don't hang around these people, you do this, you do this, do that. And all these strict house rules. So he's a real big, strong farming type sort of patan, you know, a big bloke. And, there's, and I just came back, I said, I got arrested for fighting. And I, got, I got arrested. He goes, what for? I was fighting. And they got you sort of, okay. You know, because I had to make some story like some white guys attacked me and this and that, and I had to fight back and I got arrested for it. And he goes, all right. He wasn't bothered because he was fighting. I said I got arrested for stealing or 
for any sort of misdemeanor, he would have gone crazy. He goes, okay, don't do it again. Make sure you do studies and go back to college on Monday. So I thought, oh, okay. And that was the start of me getting involved with this culture, this subculture of the casuals. So your first, was that your first fight ever, or had you been in fights before with, with either Eurasian gangs, etc.? We've had scuffles, but they were usually with each other as well. Other Asian gangs want to test other Asian gangs out. There's been scuffles. We've been chased by lots of white guys. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I can five, six of you stand against 30, 40 white guys who look really menacing. You'd run for your life. So we used to get chased a lot around town by big men. We was only kids, 16 years old. So you can imagine getting chased by blokes who were in their 20s who looked massive in those days, you know, because when you're a young kid, any man over the age of 20 looked like a proper man. So, yeah, we used to get chased a lot. They used to have scuffles with other Asian gangs, which was really bizarre. We used to be sticking together, but that's how it was in those days. Okay. But that was like the first moment of violence I saw because I was right in the middle of this massive fight and I didn't know what to do. I was like, wow, what is this? It was very electrifying at that time. So then, from what I understand from your book, Leicester, as with all clubs, had lots of different pockets of hooligans, let's say. So did you guys get together at different times against different teams or was it always in your own groups you'd go around the country, etc.? No, um, there was one group. The main group was called the Baby Squad. Then you had these little groups which were attached to them. We was called the Young Trendy Squad, the YTS, named after the Youth Training Scheme. That's what we was called, the YTS. So we used to, we knew where the, the where everybody would meet on a Saturday for the football. So everybody would go towards town. Everybody would go into town. All these groups would go into town to meet the main firm and join together to go and fight the away firms. Because knowing that there will be an away firm, there will be a firm of lads coming into Leicester looking for our little gang. Well, not little gang, looking for looking out for our group, excuse me, our firm. So we knew it was going to happen. It was disorganised, but yet it was organised. It was weird. Because we knew that would be a firm laugh. For example, West Ham come to Leicester. We knew that West Ham were going to come into the clock tower. They're coming to City Centre looking for us lot or around the ground. So we'd all be together looking for them. And there would, there would be breakaway groups. There'd be like small pockets of groups here and there, scouts or getting having little you know scuffles here and there, skirmishes. That that happens. You know what I mean? But the majority of us would stick together before the game and after the game, just before the game and after the game. Usually after the game, everybody gets together and goes look for them. But before the game, there'd be skirmishes here and there. And we'd meet in the pub where everybody would be there, where the main firm would be, and we'd walk down with them because, you know, that's how we used to do it. And just to clarify, in, in those days, when you went around looking for trouble, it was only with other firms. You weren't looking to sort of go around causing disruption in city centres and stuff like that. No, just look for other firms. Those who dress like us, because they wanted to fight us, we wanted to fight them. If I saw you walking down the street in a red and white scarf, I would just leave you alone. Sorry, claret and blue scarf. Just about to say, I'd never wear a red and white <laughs> scarf. <laughs> Couldn't pay me to do that. But um, okay, and so how frequent did you start going to all home and away games? And were you going? I know you didn't make the first match, but <laughs> we, was the idea to sort of have a bit of a scuffle, watch a match, have another scuffle? And that's your that's your day out, or was the football secondary? Because yeah. I'll be honest, listen, I'm going to ask you a question now. Listen, I'm about two thirds, three quarters of the way through your book, and I don't get a sense in it. Actually, I'm going to let me ask you a question. What football team do you support? Leicester. Well, we, okay. I, I like Arsenal as well. I you love like Arsenal. Who? Arsenal. Okay. Because as a kid, I support Arsenal. I, said, I, got, I support Leicester. 
Because, um, I mean, the only other football hooligan books I've read are probably ones by Cass Pennant, who's who's a big West Ham, well, literally a hooligan and fan. But with his books from from recollection, I haven't read them for many years, but he's, he's, I guess his love of West Ham came through all the time. You're a football hooligan. And I said, three quarters away through the book, you've hardly mentioned football at all. That's, I'm wondering how important the football aspect of it was for you. I think it was more to do with the, uh, the camaraderie belonging to a group that I've been longing. Football came second to me, don't get me wrong. We, I used to go to watch the games, but it wasn't, I wasn't crazy about it. If you got what I mean, all I wanted to do was just look at what the other fans were wearing and have a kickoff with the other fans. That was my main interest because I wanted to be with my mates. Football came second to be honest with you. The actual match came second. If we want to lose, we want to lose. It didn't really bother me because all I wanted to do was basically just be a part of something and follow this gang of lads around. You know what I mean? Sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Okay, a couple of questions. One's a very, quite a shallow one. Z, you can jump in any time, obviously. Were you not worried? Because what I can't believe is you go into... Listen, there's some amazing things about your books. I love some of the names of both brands and shops, the songs that you mention. I've added a few to my Spotify list that I'd forgotten, which is fantastic. And then but your passion for clothing really comes across. And then you get into a fight with someone. Were you not worried you're going to rip your clothes or whatever? No, I was, that was just a part of parcel of it. That was part of package of what you, you know, you wear something. If it gets ripped, it gets ripped. In those days, you could sell, you could sell it on. It was like eBay without the internet. So like Mama, your friend Rashid, we sell close to him all the time, week in, week out. <laughs> we used to go and sell it on. It was like our fence. <laughs> we sell them everything from walkback trainers tracksuit tops tracksuit bottoms used to buy all t-shirts buy them offers and just sell it on to all the villas I couldn't get the clothes because it was very hard to get the clothes in those days were very hard to get now it's a click of a finger on the internet you got it next day in those days you have to actually go out of town you have to go somewhere up north down south mainly in London we had to, to go and watch out for the other fans in London as well so we had to go get on shirt train travel all the way to London to get a special pair of trainers or a new tracksuit top or a T-shirt or a jumper. It was not easily available. So Mama was our fence. Yeah. <laughs> so. Did, okay, let's to call him Mama before we get into trouble about who, who he actually was. <laughs> I was going to ask you, um, did the violence ever spill over? So I know it was before and after match and that was part of the, the culture, but did it ever spill out on other days if you're travelling in different parts of, of the country or different parts of town and you're dressed in a gear? Did they ever kick off? Yeah, it could happen. Absolutely. So, for example, if I went to London, I'd make sure I was, you know, very cautious of where I went because there'll be gangs of lads waiting. If they see what you're wearing, they'll probably want to come and tax you. It's called taxation in those days, taxing. They'll take your clothes off you. If, a, if you walk past the say, if you go to, say, Shepherd's Bush, there's a shop called Stuart's there. I never, ever visited because I knew there's a gang of QPR lads waiting outside the shops so just to tax guys that come in and out of the shop. So it was. It could always spill over. It could always spill over. But luckily for us, it never happened to us. Even though we all went to different places, like Derby, went to Sheffield, I went to London, Birmingham, it never happened to us. It was fortunate in that sense that we never got, you know, um, taxed or chased by away fans or other fans. And in terms, but it could of, spill over definitely. Instances. So you were you were saying there were there were other Asians involved in with the rest of the football hooligans, etc., do you think, how much of an impact do you think that had on the traditional white gangs and white mentality is in, because I'm thinking, 
I think I would imagine that historically the whites, when it comes to fighting, etc., and the blacks would would have a, a a superiority complex over Asians. They're probably not expecting them to be fighting either against mm-hmm. or alongside. Um, did I don't suppose you ever had any discussions about that? Were they surprised to see you, or how did that work? No, because there was other gangs. There was another gang in Leicester called the Wongs, and the Sapna gang, the Punjabi lads. These lads used to train martial arts, used to fight a lot. So fighting with Asians in Leicester was not... Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was standard because there was a lot of Asian lads in Leicester that could fight. Mm-hmm. So the Asian lads at the football, because the Wongs came along as well, there were Asian, predominantly Asian lads that came to the football match as well for a good two seasons. They could all fight. So for the, the white lads to see Asian lads that could fight, they felt, okay, at least these guys can fight and just let us go on with it. And the other, it's the away fans you have to watch out for because the away fans will go go for you because they think, oh, there's, a, there's an Asian lad, there's a black lad, let's go and get them. Thinking that we're going to run off. And when they say, oh, I mean, these guys are standing their ground and fighting back, it'd be, uh, wow, what's going on here, sort of thing. I'm talking about Northern teams, the Northern teams mainly. And in terms of the, with the violence from, especially from the opposing fans, was... Was there ever a racial element to that then? Did they, you said they tar- they may have targeted you specifically because you're either Asian or black, etc. But was anything in particular said frequently or was there a common theme? Yeah, we got called Packy a few times, black bastards, the same, the usual thing, get the black C-U-N-T. And that was just, if you're Asian or black, you'd get called that. And especially Chelsea fans and Everton fans, they were... Leeds fans as well, they were very predominantly sort of had like a big racist element to them. So yeah, I got a, we got a lot of grief for being black or Asian. You got a lot of grief for it. But when you had people behind you or next to you, in front of you, who would stick up for you, it didn't matter. It didn't matter at all because you had these lads with you that would defend you and fight them for you. Well, not for you, but fight them because, you know, you're insulting one of their own. Which was bizarre because all the years at school, I got grief for being you know, Asian and this and that, and you've got these big white lads, and I've got all these white lads around you that will stick up for you because you're Leicester, not because you're brown or black, because you're Leicester. So so how long did you, were you involved in, in the fighting for? How And how did you start yeah. to then leave or transition out of it? It was six years, approximately 983 to 989. Six seasons, yeah, about six seasons. I transitioned because... As you get older, you got I got sort of sick of it. It was this sort of it was still I still had that adrenaline buzz, but I, I was in my mid twenties and I thought, you know, I can't do this forever. How long am I gonna do this for? So I was like 23, like 17, yeah, about 23, 24 years old. And I thought to myself, how long how long am I gonna do this for? You know, how am I gonna continue doing this? Is this what I'm meant to be doing for the rest of my life? Then uh, the Hillsborough disaster happened when uh, Liverpool played um Sheffield Wednesday, wasn't it? Was it played Forest? I can't remember. Yeah, Sheffield Wednesday. No, Liverpool versus Nottingham Forest, wasn't it? At Sheffield Wednesday's ground. Yeah. And what happened was, uh, there was a, we were playing Chelsea that day, and there was a mad day as well playing Chelsea. There's a lot of scare, skirmishes all over the earth. So I got home in the evening, there was on TV, saw all these dead bodies on the pitch, lied down on the pitch, and I, I was just gobsmacked by it all. But um, it was just like a normal day, if you get what I mean. You know, it was like, yeah, so what, sort of thing. When I went to the football next the following week, was like, you see that people that say, yeah, yeah, it happens, it was bad, yeah. 
It was like, and I thought, there was no, um, I won't say remorse, there was no um, feelings, if you get what I mean. It's just like, yeah, it happens. Oh, it was really bad, you know what I mean, sort of thing. And uh, I just, I just thought there's got more to it than this. Then the house scene came in, you know, the rave scene, the dance, you know, dance scene came in. All of a sudden, everybody was, all these lads were taking ecstasy and acid instead of, you know, going to football matches. So we jumped, our little gang jumped on it straight away. We started becoming a house addicts. It's the house music and taking, you know, ecstasy and acid. So we got transitioned from the terraces to the dance floor, which was bizarre. <laughs> from that extreme of violence to, you know, to uh, love and peace. That transition, like, boom, immediate trans. It wasn't like a slow transition, it's like, boom, straight away. From one extreme to another sort of extreme, if you want to call it that. It's happened. And so what, okay, so what, what drove that? Was it, or your desire to join that? Was it the fact that there was, there was, there's still the clothing involved or, or did that change? No, the clothing was the dress down. And the thing is, it was just another subculture. It was new. Mm. We just wanted to try it out. And we knew some lads that went to, uh, they went to Magaloff or somewhere and they came back. They, were, they, were, they, were, they weren't really football hooligans. They were just lads that came to the football matches, but they weren't, I won't say they were diehard hooligans. And they started, you know, they got us into it. They were from the outside. They were from like Blaby, this area called Blaby. And they got us into it. And then all of a sudden we just jumped on it and thought, this is new, let's try it. And it was summer, the football games had finished. It was summertime. There was no matches at the time. So we just got onto it and thought, oh, this is this is wicked. This is better than football. Even though it was, artific- it was an artificial buzz. But at that time it was much, much better because all you do is dance, listen to music. Instead of chasing football fans and beating them up. So what was, what was the worst injury you got from the fighting? Uh, I got hit with an iron bar across my head at the frontier by a skinhead. This was uh, this is violence outside the game. This is on a, on a it went to Skegness like for a bank holiday Monday, and there was some skinheads, and uh, we sort of had a there was a big scuffle with these skinheads, and this guy from Sheffield skinhead whacked me the iron bar. It was like an iron. It was like a billboard, but it was iron in those days, and swung it around, hit me around the head just here. I think that's probably the most I've ever had. And I've got a couple of kickings here and there, but not as bad as that on my head because I had stitches. My online jumper was ruined. So, yeah. What was, when, when you're having a fight, what's the idea behind the fight? Is it to actually to hurt someone or is it just to be in that, that participation in the fight? It's a participation. Basically, what, what, when you talk about football violence, you've got, you've got the top boys at the front of each firm. They'll stand together and they'll, they'll clash and whoever's winning, then the rest will join in. You know what I mean? So if you see his top, your top fighters getting beat up, those that are sat behind the top fighters are going to think, hold on a minute, if they're getting beat up, what's the, what chance have we got? And that's when you start backing off. So we let the big boys fight first. And we stand on the, on the edges and think, hold on a minute, yeah, yeah, they're getting the battle. Yeah, they're winning. Then you just join in. Otherwise, you just, it's, just, it's a coward's game sometimes. You know what I mean? Because you lay the boot in, you run out, you throw a punch, you run out, you run back into the crowd. So it was just like a, it was like a coward. I want to say a coward's way. Yeah, it kind of is. It wasn't like a, a proper brawl, a proper scrap. It was just like you go in, you kick, you run out. You go in, you punch, and you run out. But the top boys will be fighting out the front. They're brawling. You know what I mean? But if you're in a certain situation where you're surrounded and you've got no chance, no choice but to fight, then you've got that. You have to fight. But in the when two big firms clash together, that's what usually happens. You see the top boys fighting, you show about the front, and then you, the ones that are behind and watch. And see how well the top boys are doing, and that's when they either run or get ran. 
So on that note, have you have you watched the myriad of football films about hooligans and which ones would you say are more accurate than the others? Uh, Nick Loves the Firm is probably the most accurate because it's got the clothing, the music and the standoffs as well, which is more accurate than... I like the original Firm, Gary Oldman in. But if, they had, if they had the clothes on, if they were the design levels, that would be the classic. You know what I mean? But no one took a gun to a football match and shot anyone. That's ridiculous. That storyline was towards the end was ridiculous. But the actual camaraderie in the football violence was great. But the clothing was wrong. The clothes was wrong. But Night and Age, Nick Love remade it in 2010, I believe, or 2009. He remade the whole film and with the same sort of storyline, but with the clothes and the music and the styles and the, and he got it spot on. Football Factory, okay. Yeah, not bad. Green Street, yeah, it's okay. This run of the mill sort of films, but the firm, the original, it's not the original film. The original film was good, but the new version of the firm is better. That's how it was. Okay, fair enough. And so did you ever come clean to your parents about what you were doing when you were disappearing on Saturday afternoons? Yeah, well, they sort of eventually found out when we got arrested. Me and my brother, so, yeah, when, they, when he found out we got arrested for football violence, they, they wanted us to become doctors, engineers, pilots. We let them down big time. We became football thugs instead, but uh, we did come back to ed- education eventually. And we sort of thought this ain't going anywhere, so I went, I went back to university and you know got myself a degree and a master's, and now I've got a different sort of path now. But they were disappointed. They, they found out and they weren't very happy about it. But yeah, it was, it was violence. It wasn't stealing. It wasn't you know it wasn't you know I don't know the other sort of vice you know, out there. The other sort of probably not something they could they could understand. I think. <laughs> I mean, listen, I was never involved in it. So I'll be honest, I, I know about it and I've read about it and I've talked to people about it, but I don't fully understand it because some things I do. I mean, that thing about belonging, um, West Ham and me and belonging, yes, I fully understand that. And being in a group, I mean, even in a crowd, there are things I've sung as part of the football crowd that I would never, A, would never do it now. Um, and I just, and just wouldn't, but, yeah, that sense of belonging, I fully get that. But I guess for them, it would have been very different as well. So, okay, so you've written the book. I'll show the book up again. Um, and what, what else, what are you looking to come out of the book? If, uh, was there something that, did it develop in something, a play or something? Am I right? Or Yes, it did. It became a play in Leicester at the Curve Theatre, which was, uh, which had, every night was stand, standing ovations, every night. People love the story from being a from being this thug to a person who's redeemed himself and became a better person. Is that transition of being not belonging to belonging and then to get out of all that and to actually get make something out of your life? It's a yeah, it was it became a play, it was great. I mean, it got rave reviews. I mean, The Guardian, The Times, uh, other newspapers said it was great. So yeah, it's gonna come again, hopefully. It was gonna come again in February, but because of COVID, they've delayed it again. But now I've got, a, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> now I've got another thing in the pipeline, but I'm not going to say too much because I wait till it happens. But something's happening in the pipeline. Fair enough. But my, the reason I wrote the book is because I saw the rise of the EDL in 2009 and the recruiting on the terraces. So I thought to myself, how can these guys, what can I do to reach out to them? How can I reach out to these guys? Because I used to be a football leader myself and I thought, majority of the EDL were football hooligans. I thought, how am I going to reach out to these people? So I thought, if I write a book, tell them about my story, 
maybe they might have a different perception of what Muslims are like in the UK because they were just targeting Muslims, EDL were. So I wrote the book. That's why I wrote it. I didn't write it for fame or glory to get money. No, it's about education to educate these uh, lads that are involved in the EDL, the English Defence League. That's and how, how has the book generally been received and how widespread has it been? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, the majority of people that, well, the vast majority, I don't know one or two that not like it, but I'm not sure I've not heard anything, but there will always be one or two people that don't like it. But from the people that have given me feedback, they loved it and they, were, and they have changed their mindset. They thought we didn't know there was Asians that were involved. We didn't know Muslims were involved or whatever. We just thought you guys just wanted to take over the country and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. You know, and there was like, they, were, they loved the story because it was different. It wasn't a run-of-the-mill sort of story. The most hooligan books out there, apart from Cass's book and Barrington's book and maybe a couple of others, all about going here, having a fight, beating everybody up, coming home, getting drunk. <laughs> That's the sort of gist of most hooligan books. But some books out there like Cass's book, which is quite good. Barrington's book, which is good. Barrington's book is excellent because he doesn't just talk about football, he talks about other things as well, like martial arts and stuff. And about growing up in Hansworth and Birmingham. And you've got other books that, my book's similar to that. It's not just about the football violence, it's about other things as well that come into play. That's what they liked about it, the cultural side of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's you you bring so many different things into it. I think anyone who's close to my age would would, would love the reminiscing in it. And like I said, I've it's not just the labels and the shops you mention and and I guess the places, the music as well, which I thought was fantastic as well. Z, any any questions at the moment? No, with hooliganism and and and, and casuals is a subculture of football at the time, right? Um, what was the perception of? The, you know, I know you said that you've had people who didn't didn't realise there were Asians in gangs and in, in involved in football violence. There's a certain romantic element now when you look back at the past, right, back in the 80s and how football used to be. Everyone talks about how, how football was before the Premier League and now it's all about commercialism, money. What was football like back then? Like, what was... It was great. What, yeah. It was great because it wasn't... Um, now it's, 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 like, it's more about families now, which is good as well. Don't get me wrong, it's great. But it's all seating. In those days, you could stand, you could sweat at the referee, you, you can just use colourful language... You can, you know, be angry and just let all your anger and frustrations out on that afternoon just for those couple of hours. There's a working class movement then. Now it's kind of watered down now. I think it's more, I don't know, it's just like they seem to bring in more families now, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. A lot of women are coming to the football matches now, never used to before, you know, and uh, you've got women commentators now, which you never used to have before. It's like a, it was just a male-dominated thing. And uh, in those days, it was great because it was just about, I don't know, it was just, there was no VAR. It was a reference decision. If you made a bad decision, you could go mental at him and swear at him. And then it, it, was just, it was just great. It was, you can boo, and you can, you can give abuse to the away, the, the away team. and not Obviously not physically hurt them, but give them a lot of grief. We can't do that now. I remember my daughter was calling Henderson a something. I can't, I'm not going to say something, but he, he, was, he came off. He's walking past us. My old daughter says to him, Henderson knew something. He was like, looking, looking around, looking for her. So he can report her, report her. You know, something because now it's all about reporting people. And it's like, yeah, it's not the same. In those days, it was great. You could sit anywhere you wanted, stand anywhere you wanted as well. You could just pay out the pay out the door and go in. Now it's all season ticket holders. Hard to get tickets. You know, I've got a season ticket, so I'm fortunate. But in those days, you could pay at the you could pay at the you know at the stand, turnstile, pay and go in. You'd have to have a ticket. So what you because I mean in Cass's book, so Cass 
was banned by West Ham. And as far as I know, his ban is still in place. So he can't actually go to home matches. Um, how about Leicester, the football club? What was their reaction? I guess at the time, what were they doing? And has anyone from the club been in contact with you since the book's come out? No, not really. But the club's reaction is nothing. I've not heard anything from the club. I know the people that work for the football for the football club know about the book and they've spoke to me about it. You know, guys have asked me to speak to some youth youth members, but not in the actual football ground. I've done once. I think I've done a bit of filming there once with an ex EDL guy. There's a bit of filming inside the football ground, which was good. I have done once one talk there to some youth, but the football team itself have not really approached me or anything. No, nothing. You looked surprised Cass. when I said Cass was banned. Yeah, I thought it was over. I don't know. I'm still quite bad. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he's back in, but I think when I read the book time ago. 10 years ago, he, he was banned at the time. This was many years after he'd, I guess, turned over a, a new leaf, etc. Um, And I think it was a lifetime ban. Maybe it didn't continue through to Stratford. I don't know. Because um, no. obviously, in some respects, that there are many aspects of it which... Z, you've mentioned it's it's looked back romantically, but it was a dark time. I mean, Hillsborough was was obviously one of the worst things, and that, especially at the time, even though subsequently it's proven not to be the case, was linked to football violence yeah. um, and football hooliganism. And so, uh, lots of things have changed. I think, obviously, especially since Hillsborough, the, the government's taken more of a hardline stance against football violence. Technology's improved since then. CCTV's got better. Um, communication between forces, etc., has got a lot better. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm sure to a degree. In fact, I know to a degree, it still happens a little bit underground, even if it's to a much, as far as I know, a much smaller scale than it used to be. You've got to think. Look, the ground was for like twenty five thousand. Fans, okay, in those days, I'm talking about the 80s, 20 to 25,000 fans approximately, maybe, I don't know, it might be less. And only a handful of people get involved in the violence. Only a handful. It wasn't like the whole, you know, the whole stadium was involved in it. It would just be like a handful of lads would get involved. So that was the romantic side of it, if you get what I mean. We'll still be, and then we'll get arrested and you get done for it, and then you to come out and follow following Saturday and do it again. But now, if you do it now, it's a mugs game. I don't think it's even worth doing it now because the prison sentences are you get three years for throwing a punch. Three years for throwing a punch, is it worth it? And that record will be on your, on your, you know, that, that conviction will be on your record for the rest of your life. It's because everything's computerised now. The fines, the, the shame, bring it onto your family. Because in those days, it was a different culture, different era. You know, you, you know, the subcultures in those days were different. Now, if you do it now, it's just, it ain't worth it. If it's underground, it's underground, but it's not as um, widespread as it used to be in the 80s. And to be honest, if you get caught for violence, you're going to look like an idiot, to be honest with you. You know, it's not, it's not even worth it. There's other outlets out there you can vent your anger, take a cage fine, or just, I don't know, go to, I don't know, go to Europe, you want go watch a Polish game and get involved if you want to, but it ain't worth it. It's not, it's not worth it at all. You talk, so just, I mean, so our podcast is around Asians in football, so just bringing that back to that for a second. Um, you said you're a season ticket holder at Leicester, you take your daughter, how old is she? No, I take my sons, but my daughter came to that game because my son didn't want to go. Okay. So my son's one's 13 and he was 23. 
Okay. And you feel safe when you take them? There's never been any... Absolutely. Well, mind you, saying that, I when we played Stoke a couple of seasons ago, and uh, I walked in, was walking home, it was dark, it was winter, and there was a group of Stoke fans, casuals, about 20, 30 of them, one of them was saying, hit him, hit him. And I turned around, they were going to hit my son, my oldest son, because he had a stone iron jacket on. And I said, I looked at him, he goes, you what? And he goes, oh, Riaz, how you doing, mate? Oh, this, you know, this, then... And they recognised me from the book or from Facebook or whatever. And they just sort of calmed everything down. But I thought, that's the only instance I thought I didn't feel safe at that moment. But otherwise, it's, it's pretty safe. Because yeah, you can talk to hooligans now. You can talk to the casuals now and say, listen, in those days, you couldn't you have to have to river run or fight. <laughs> but now you can actually you know, have a conversation and say, lads, come on, leave it out. You know what I mean? Sort of thing. They'll leave you alone. If you don't want it, you don't want it. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, um, Z, any last questions? No, it's been a very enjoyable chat, and I'm uh, I'm going to get the book now. I want to read more. Definitely want to read more. Yeah. <laughs> you can get it from olddogbooks.net. Olddogbooks.net. That's where you can get the book. It's on sale at the moment for $4.99. I paid double that. <laughs> you paid double that? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I, I, I want a signed copy, though. Yeah, I don't mind giving you a signed copy. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll send it across to you and get signed. How's that? Of course. Yeah, sound. Yeah, no I think problem. I'll do that. Okay, yeah. Ria, so if people want to see what you're up to, what's the best way of them getting Facebook. in touch or seeing Facebook? Yeah. And just look up what Riaz Khan on Facebook. Yeah. And you'll see a blue and white picture of me with an IDAS logo underneath it. All right, fantastic. Riaz, listen, I've loved this conversation. Um, I think it's a great way for us to kick off our season two. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on, guys.